Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 1. Again, I will thank you for your prayers. I'm, I am getting over this cold. It is on the mend, but I still am coughing a bit. But uh, things have changed over the last few days, and it's much better. Thankful to the Lord for that. So please forgive any hacking and coughing and sniffing and snorting and all of that stuff. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious." May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. David Clarkson will help us for a moment here with a quotation. David Clarkson writes, One out of Christ cannot love Christ. Neither amore beneficiente nor complaciente. Not for what he does, for no special favor, no spiritual blessing is vouchsafed but in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Not for what he is, for out of Christ he sees no beauty, tastes no sweetness, though there be nothing else in him, he knows him not, he sees no beauty or comeliness that he should desire him. Christ is either a stumbling block or foolishness, he never manifests himself, but when he comes to make his abode, John 14, 21 through 23. Nor does he taste any sweetness in him. None taste the Lord as gracious, but those that come to him as a living stone. He must lie in your bosoms as a bundle of myrrh. Well, I believe that's very well said. We want to talk now about uh, a review, a brief review, and then we want to move on to the last phrase of this introductory section in chapter 2. If so be, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So, so far in our passage, we've looked at what it means to be babes in Christ. Not in the immature sense. Not in the way that we would be insulted or corrected for that. But in that right kind of, of uh, babiness. In that right kind of humility and credulity. Resting and supply and provision. In that kind of sense. Uh, we also looked at milk, uh, the milk of the word, and we saw continuity, supply, abundance, and we did not see immaturity. Every now and then milk will be used in scripture, won't it, for a, for, uh, a chastisement of immaturity, but not here, not here. This milk that we desire is not, uh, not anything but commendable. And then also, we asked ourselves several questions about desiring that milk. You'll remember from last week, we asked, who should desire that milk? How should we desire that milk? Where should we desire? And when should we desire? And we spoke of what happens when we are deprived of that milk, how our souls wither. And then we looked also at the context of this supply, that it comes from our mother, the church. That there's not a... 
a context independent from the church with regard to the word. And we said it this way, just like our confession says it. We said that God has placed this nourishing milk in the context of the church of the living God. And while we don't say it is impossible, and we move that off of the table as an impossibility, we say that the ordinary way that folks come to believe in Christ Jesus is through the ordinary means of grace. And those are evident in the church. There are a few places in Scripture where things are, in one sense or another, extraordinary, right? And we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch. How the Ethiopian eunuch um, was reading the Bible all by himself. Yet, and while some would say, you see, you don't need the church. Yet, the Lord sent a preacher to him to preach the gospel to him. It was evident that reading even Isaiah 53 by himself was not in the Lord's eyes sufficient. And so uh, there was a minister sent to him to explain to him what he was reading and that explanation encompassed the preaching of Jesus Christ to which the Ethiopian eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And while the fullness of the New Testament revelation is surpassing the Old Testament revelation, still the Lord would place that in the context of the church. Lord willing, this afternoon we'll look at that passage in Galatians chapter 4 that Mr. Clarkson references here. And we'll see that Paul will speak of the Jerusalem which is above, that heavenly Jerusalem, in other words, that heavenly representation of the church, he will call it our mother. We ought to remember that. It is possible, right? But it is highly extraordinary for a babe to live without its mother. So these are important things. We talked about them already, only to refresh you in them. So we move on now to the next verse, which is in verse 3. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So my plan is in unfolding this passage to talk today about tasting and then to fall back a verse beyond that, Lord willing, next week uh, to speak about growth, that ye may grow thereby. And the reason we're doing that, beloved, is because the, the New Testament has several specific issues of Christian growth. And I want to make sure that when we hear about growth, that we put them in their proper context. Okay, there's growth in faith, growth in grace, growth in this, and growth in that. And I want to do just a few minutes on each one of those, not draw them out into a sermon for each one, but to remind you that Christian growth, that the growth that is being spoken of here in this passage, is a growth that God rules over he superintends he has ordered it and he has revealed it in his word and so we want to know about that but not today today i want to talk about tasting tasting so as we uh, as we have said the new birth uh, or life from christ is consistent with that growth that we must follow we taste that the lord is gracious by his word and spirit and we grow by his word and spirit as well, right? So there is a consistency here that we must talk about first, 
Beloved, if you're going to grow in grace, if you're going to grow in faith, in all, all, all along those lines that the, that the Bible sets forth for us in the New Testament, it will be by means of the Word of God, yet not the Word of God received as a, as a clod, as a thing in itself, but the Word of God ushered to our present thoughts, made use of by the Spirit of God, illuminated to our minds, where our hearts are... Our hearts, our, our minds, our, our, our inward man is, is graced by God to reach forward and embrace that word. That's only how we grow. It's the only way. We have received Jesus Christ by faith, so walk by faith. That's how Paul will put it in Colossians. We receive Jesus Christ, or we are born again by the word of God and by his spirit. So that is how we grow as well. And we can't expect to grow apart from the pure milk of the word okay so it is consistent to us the word will only be desirable as mr clarkson said to those who have tasted that the lord is gracious now the word for gracious here is not the standard word for grace that we see in the new testament it's not charis it's christos not like christ that's not the same term it's Christos, which means kind, benevolent, careful, or full of care. And we note then that the Lord is indeed gracious like that. He is benevolent, isn't he? We've, we've talked about this before, but let me remind you here. Let me remind you about this, this wonderful thing that we know about our God. What do we know about him? That every day... Rising up from the from the earth as a um, as a as a stench, sinfulness is rising up. How many of you have ever been to a, a landfill before? That's the that's the euphemistic term. We call it a landfill. It's what they're filling the land with, right? So you drive up to that place and. Suddenly you start seeing little bits of things all over the place. And, but you haven't gotten there yet. You drive up and you go up this hill and you cross over this ridge top. And you come down into this depression and there's big moving trucks moving dirt around and so on. And then you get out of your vehicle. And what does it smell like? Well, it's not pleasant, is it? There's trash. Would you spend time there if you had, if you had another choice? Would that be, hey, let's go... Let's take a picnic lunch and go to the landfill. Probably not. Right? Okay, so that smell that rises up, that is something that would make you turn your face away. That is something that would make you flee to the next county. Right? But think of our sinfulness as rising up to God in that same way, day by day by day. From those who are his people and those who are not his people. This wickedness and this sinfulness is wafting up off of the earth day by day. And what does God do? He continues to show kindness. He continues to, to be good to his creation. He causes rain to fall, plants to grow, animals to grow. He provides, doesn't he? Seed time, harvest, summer, winter. What did the Lord promise to Noah? There was a time when that stench 
came up and the Lord said, I'm going to destroy men from off of the earth. But not anymore. What can we expect from the Lord? We can expect summer, winter, seed time, harvest, goodness. We can expect, as Jesus will say, His reign to fall upon the just and the unjust. That's what the word Christos means. So that, beloved, even for the unbeliever, even for someone who has no, at least at this point in his career, relationship to the Lord, no communion with Him, that he might at least witness God's Christos, his kindness, his benevolence. You say, well, Pastor, God also sends disaster. He does. He sends disaster. But what do the disasters remind us of? Why are they called disasters? Because they're not so common. People go along for years, don't they? And when a disaster comes, they're what? Completely unprepared. Why? Because disasters don't come that often. Think about that. If the Lord dealt with us according to our sins, it would be disaster upon disaster upon disaster over and again. But the Lord is kind. He's benevolent. He has a purpose even in giving good things to evil people. And that might be an encouragement to any of us, no matter what our spiritual state is, to recognize at least in that, at least in that we are not overwhelmed with judgment day upon day. Even in that we might recognize what? the kindness of the Lord. We might have a, quote, taste of his kindness. Now, I don't think Peter is limiting what he means here to that. But certainly we can make that application. That we are not under judgment as we should be, as we, as we truly deserve. We recognize from our reading today in the Psalms in 13 and 14 that the concept of the, quote, good person, that needs to be jettisoned. That's gone. That's a, that's a lie of the man who says there is no God. And so the first step in tasting that the Lord is gracious is we might say that the Lord has caused everyone to taste of his graciousness in that sense. In that his temporal supply, his temporal provision, his temporal maintenance continues even though the landfill continues to waft upward. But there's more than that, I think, that Peter is talking about here. Um, In that he receives sinners to himself with grace and forgiveness. And when Peter talks about, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, although Christos doesn't generally talk about that special saving grace, it can. It can be wide enough for that. And certainly in the context of the passage, Peter would have us to recognize the saving grace of God, as he's mentioned back in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Right? And so God, beloved, condescends to undertake with his people's affliction. 
His greatest kindness then is that he receives sinners to himself. He condescends to to be afflicted with them. is how the prophet Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 65, I think. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And that also what he does is he forgives sinners. You recognize, don't you, that God is under no obligation to forgive sinners. He doesn't owe you anything but judgment which he has chosen in the case of his people to visit upon Christ. In that the Lord has not judged us to date, in that he has forgiven us our sins, in that he identifies with our afflictions, we might say that we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 7. We'll begin our reading in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went down into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said to her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. This is a great story. It's a real historical situation. Jesus was actually in the house of a Pharisee named Simon. How the woman got in there, I don't know. It was an extraordinary providence, obviously. Simon normally never would have let such a woman in. 
Perhaps she came in and because Jesus was there, uh, decided that it would be better to wait until he left to throw her out. I don't know. But I can come up with enough scenarios in my mind to tell me that this is not a legend or a a parable. It's an actual story as Jesus tells it. What is important here is that, that the woman shows us what it means to taste that the Lord is gracious. She gives us that by way of example. She has tasted already the graciousness of Christ, and so she can't be taken away from him. Even to the point of social embarrassment and ridicule, And Christ, for his part, he receives her. He receives her, doesn't he? The contrast is palpable between the woman who understood how much she had been forgiven and the Pharisee who thought rather he had something to offer to Christ. I'm having him to my house, you know. I'm going to feed him a meal. I'm going to supply for him. He has need of dinner, and I'm going to take care of that. The woman has nothing to offer him, yet she offers him everything in faith. She gives him her tears, her hair, her alabaster box of ointment. But notice where all of those are applied. And notice how in the the story Jesus will say to Simon, You gave me no oil for my hair head she gave it for my feet it says that she would not come around to the front of christ so here she is behind him doing all of these things it's fascinating isn't it to think of it what has she showed she has showed that she understands she has tasted that the lord is gracious And she cannot be taken from him. Um, For many, they come to Christ as the rebel who put the religious leaders of, of his day in their place. For others, it's not his kindness and forgiveness, but his philosophy and his ethics that they come to. For more, it's A kindness that is redefined for license and thought to be liberty, but is bondage instead. I come to Christ because, you know, he'll forgive me for anything and let me do anything. If, however, we have tasted that the Lord is gracious as this woman has, what will we be? We will be sacrificial in our coming to Christ. We will glorify his name and not our own. We'll put our wants behind us. We will become, as Paul will say, fools for his sake. Why? Because it is better to be a fool who has tasted that the Lord is gracious than the wisest of the world. Beloved, there are perhaps a thousand reasons for professed loyalty to Christ, for faith in Christ. But here it is said that we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That is, that like those newborn babes, we have come forth from the womb and we have tasted 
the graciousness of the Lord. And what does a baby do on that first taste? Oh, I've had enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> no. It's the opposite. It's not just tasting that is in view here then. It is tasting and drinking. It is tasting and relishing. It is tasting and abiding with Christ. It is like that baby's first taste that becomes a motivation for more, an insatiable desire indicated in our parable by the woman's bearing iniquity, bearing shame for her nearness and coming to Christ. You know, we taste that the Lord is good by hearing and receiving His Word. This is not a reality perceived by the senses. We note that this too is in keeping with with what Peter has been teaching us since this last chapter. We come to Christ, we are born again by that Word. He's not talking about physically being born again. He's not entered into Nicodemus's realm of questioning. right? He realizes what it is to be born of the Spirit, to be born of the Word of God, which is how he explains it in the rest of the chapter. And then he will use the word taste and growth to help us to understand that that taste is not enough. It's an interesting thing to note, isn't it, that unbelievers taste all of the time. There, there is a tasting that, it, that does not lead to life. And we'll hear about that in the scripture even. We, we know that the natural man knows things about God. That God has revealed them apart from his word. He has simply given him a priori understanding of who God is. Every man has that. Every person that has ever come into this world has that. Um, he will understand in, from Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He will understand also that uh, what God's truth is and he will hold it in unrighteousness. The truth of God. He will understand God's eternal power and Godhead in Romans 1.20. He will also understand in Romans 1.32 that God is a judge of the wicked and that the wicked do things that are worthy of death. Every person that has ever come into this world understands that they have at least tasted that much of who the Lord is. And what did they do with that taste? What does Paul tell us that they did with that taste? (coughs) Although they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful... But their foolish heart was darkened. They turned their eyes instead to idols that they had made. They did not want to retain God in their knowledge. And so they made up gods in his stead. And worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And God for his part. Once that kind of judicial hardening takes place. The Lord will advance that hardening by giving them up. Giving them up. Most perfect picture of our own society, isn't it? Because the things that we see going on in our society being promoted 
uh, the perversion that we see being promoted is the end of the judgment process, not the beginning. And so we are on the tail end of judgment here, not the beginning, the tail end. But beloved, there's another tasting. There's the tasting that the natural man has. Okay. But there's another tasting. And there's a tasting that... How do I put it? There, there's, a, there's a tasting for the people of God that is used as an incentive to continue in their abiding in Christ. And this is the tasting that Peter is talking about here. Because he follows that with coming to Christ as a living stone. He'll change the metaphor, but he'll continue the idea. It's abiding in Christ. It's that kind of tasting that leads... Well, it's the tasting that creates a thirst. It's the tasting that creates a desire. It's the tasting that cannot be satisfied with just a taste. And this, uh, this concept is very familiar to us in the scripture. Let's turn to uh, Psalm 34 for a moment. Verse 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Notice there's a tasting and then there's a trusting. It begins with tasting that he is good, that he is kind, that he is benevolent, that he's all those things, but much more. We begin with God's goodness, but we end in trusting him. Right? Right? In Psalm 63, verse 5, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my lips shall praise thee with joyful lips. And so notice now, while we're not talking necessarily with the word taste, my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. And for the ancient Near Easterner, Marrow and fatness were the delicacies of his age. We turn on to Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. We looked at this verse either last week or the week before. So, There may be some of you in this congregation that are like this, but most people are not. You take one little taste of honey and that's all you need. I'm done. No more honey for the rest of my life. I've had all I need. Thank you. That's not what the psalmist has in mind. It's it's a sweeter taste than honey. And so it is desirable. He'll come back again and again is the implication. Notice Proverbs chapter 24. Verse 13. My son, eat thou honey because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul when thou hast found it. Then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. And so Solomon equates tasting honey here to wisdom and taking it in and keeping it. And it says, You'll not be disappointed. Just like honey doesn't disappoint. You'll not be disappointed. 
by the wisdom of God, by partaking, by tasting. And then we move over to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And in chapter 5, I'm sorry, is that right? Yeah, chapter 5, verse 1. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends, drink. Yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. It's a great passage, isn't it? It teaches us of the Lord's invitation, not just for a taste, but for a full draft, a full plate, a full meal. And that is the sweetest of fruits, the sweetest of all. However, there is also a kind of tasting And this, beloved, takes place generally and only within the visible church. And this is not a saving kind of tasting. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 5. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the, of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Of course, then we have the, 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 the statement of sweet assurances after that in verses 9 through the end of the chapter. This is a, this is a fascinating passage, isn't it? Because it teaches us that there is a tasting that doesn't result in eternal life. There is a tasting if it is left off. If you taste, if you enter in to the fellowship of the saints, and you have by way of that communal experience some idea of the goodness of God, the goodness of His Spirit, the goodness of His Word, but you reach a point where you say, that is enough. No more for me. And that tasting does not lead to a lifelong slurping, as we heard last week. A lifelong abundance of partaking in the Lord and His Word. Beloved, it doesn't matter where you start, it matters where you finish. We must finish at the fount. We must finish at the supply We must finish with Christ and abiding in Him. One of the ways that we know 
that we belong to him is that we abide in him and we don't stray from him. Right? So there is a tasting that can only take place. I mean, whoever wrote this, whichever apostle it was, makes it very clear that this only takes place in the construct of the visible church. These things that take place here take place here. In places just like this. And so it reminds us, doesn't it? That if we turn away from the Lord, even in the midst of great supply, if we shut off the spigot, if we, de- if we desire a taste for something else, beloved, we will not finish. And if we don't finish, we do, we do not abide. Now in verse 9, we remember we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now notice verse 10, for God is not unrighteous. In other words, let me say it this way, there are not those begging to be at the fountain and God has said no. If there is a shutting off of the spigot, it will be, beloved, your hand that shuts it off. God is not unrighteous. We are the ones who struggle. (coughs) So, another hindrance then to this coming is, and we'll close with this, we don't have a lot of time, but we have enough time to develop this one point. Notice, and I'm, I'm, I'm turning off of the phrase, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And there are times... It is true that there are those who come into the church and they begin tasting of the Lord, but they don't have good, easy, gracious thoughts of God. They have hard thoughts of God instead. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus will develop a parable to teach us about that. We'll we'll have to close with this passage. So turn to Matthew 25 with me and let's see what it says there. Verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents and to another two and to another one. To every man according to his several ability and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise he that had received two He also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained besides them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful Over a few things I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he 
which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hadst not sown and gathering where thou hadst not strawed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid my talent in the earth, and lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beloved, what would keep you at tasting level rather than a full draft? Would it be hard thoughts of God? I know him. He's going to take away stuff I like. He's a, he's a hard master. To serve him is to, is to deprive, is to limit my freedom. It's to, it's to hold me back from developing my full potential. It's limiting, it's stultifying to serve God. He's a hard master, you know. May I say that no one would come out and say it like that. But those are some of the attitudes that obtain, that keep us from a full draft. Let me ask you, Christian. Do you see the marks of grace? Do you have a desire, not just for a taste, Will you venture what the Lord has given you upon His faithfulness? Like the five and the two? Because you recognize it's not venturing it at all? That you will receive a hundredfold and in the end eternal life? And that there's nothing in this world that compares to the knowledge of the Lord. Remember we ended last time in, in, from Philippians 3 or two times ago. That was the mindset of the Apostle Paul. There's nothing in this world that compares to the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things to do count them but dung that I may win Christ. We live in an age of Christianity where people are, teachers are telling Christians, preachers are telling Christians to be satisfied with a taste. Let Jesus come into your life as if they had a life apart from him. Beloved, Jesus is the only life there is. We must not add Jesus like a taste to all of the other beverages that we're sipping in this world. He must be to us like mother's milk. 
exclusively. He has an exclusive place in our hearts. He has a desirable place in our hearts. And we have and will venture everything upon Him because of His faithfulness. We don't think hard thoughts of Him. We have tasted that He is gracious and that He will bring us all the way to the end. His supply will sustain us to eternal life. One thing I didn't get to in this sermon, but we'll talk about in weeks to come, is there is this concept of tasting that we've already looked at. But then on the heels of the concept of tasting, there is also the concept of abundance. The thief comes, Jesus says, to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that in abundance. Beloved, can you believe it with me? Can you believe God's grace, God's spirit helping us? That to taste that the Lord is gracious is not enough. But that when we desire that full flood of His grace, He will give it. He will not hold back. That river that we see flowing out of Ezekiel's temple, oh, it starts out as puddles you might splash in. Then it's over your foot. Then it's over your ankle. Then it's up your calf and and past your knee to your thigh, to the belly, to the waist, to the chest, and then it becomes a flood that no man can pass over. In Revelation chapter 22, it is a river that flows out from the throne of God and the Lamb, and by it grows those trees for the healing of the nations. Don't rest in a taste, beloved. Don't rest in a taste here and a taste from this supply and a taste from that supply. Don't be syncretistic with your soul. Drink from Christ and Him alone. If any man thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink and from his belly shall flow rivers of water. Speaking of his spirit. With that then let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father we come unto thee. Thankful for the confidence that we might rightly have. That in coming to thee. And tasting that thou wilt indeed raise up in our desire. Raise up in our hearts a taste. Oh Lord, be with us now as we examine our own hearts. Be with us as we think on how we have handled that taste. How we have desired Thee more than our daily food, as we heard last week. And how, Lord, how we have not desired as we should. And Lord, we pray when we look upon our own hearts and find that We have not drunk deeply in thy fountains, O Lord. Raise up that desire within us.
that we might come to thee early and often, asking on behalf of our affections that we would love thee, that we would love thy word, that we would taste and we would drink and we would slurp and we would swim in that river and that thou wouldst take not only the names of false gods and idols out of our mouths, but every other draft. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.